Promotion Man, the true backstories of the most iconic bands in the world told by Fred Myers and interviewed by me, L.A. Lloyd. Get involved and interact on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find the links at promotion-man.com. That's promotion-man.com. Download the weekly Promotion Man podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Today's guest is Jack Forthite, who was in radio and in record label business, and um, even in the uh, record chart business of like record world. I don't know why I never yep. figured out the transition from radio to records because I'm still making the same thing I was making about 1985. You you record guys got it right. I, I screwed up, Jack. You missed the boat. <laughs> you missed the yeah, expense account. The, the big prize was the money at the other side. That's right. For sure. And the expense account. I mean, I, I never really paid for anything. I remember one of my bosses, John Bulos, made me grab an expense sheet and it had all these squares. And he goes, do you have it in front of you? And I said, I do. He said, okay, let's go over it. He said, tell me why every single square is filled in. I said, well, I thought that's how it was supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, I'm sure you know the famous story about Al Corey and the expense accounts. But, well, well, let's uh, if hear you, it. If you haven't heard, I'll, I'll give you a real refresher. He was working the Beatles back uh, years ago when he was a local man in Boston, and his hat flew off his head. And so the next week when he turned his expenses, he wrote down one hat, $10. <laughs> and the uh, controller said, we're, we're not paying for your hat. And he called Al up and said, don't put this on your expense report. The next week, of course, Al being Al, put that on his expense report. And, of course, the uh, accountant he called up again and said, don't put that on your expense account. If you do it again, we're going to fire you. Wow. The next, week, the next week, the expense account went through, did not have it on there. The accountant thought, well, you know, I guess I was being heavy-handed. And he called Al and he said, I want to thank you for not putting your hat on the expense report. He said, oh, it's there. <laughs> <laughs> Just find it. Yeah. So, so, Jack, tell us how you got into the business and kind of take us through your different steps from radio to record world to Chrysalis. Sure. Um, so, uh, I mean, the, the, the short the shortest way I can make the story is at a very young age, my parents had passed away. So I, I loved two things as a kid. I loved music, mostly, and I loved science. So I took the path of least resistance, which was music. Uh, I went, ended up working on a radio station. I'd done, in, in high school, I'd done a lot of DJing, of dances and stuff. So it was a natural transition for me to go into radio. And I worked at some small stations in the suburbs of Pittsburgh uh, in Carnegie at WZUM where we were a very progressive rock. You know, we started every show within a God of the Vita. And, uh, <laughs> and you didn't get to talk for 30 minutes. <laughs> That's right. You didn't have to come up with some stuff. Uh, and then I met a guy named uh, Buzz Bennett, who was putting on a radio station here in Pittsburgh, which was very groundbreaking at the time, called 13Q, and it was Top 40. I was a little more tragically hip at that time. and thought, oh, I don't want to be on a Top 40 station. But uh, Buzz convinced me that really the top 40 or the, or the mass appeal stations were going to play the best of everything we played and everybody else. So I ended up working there, uh, doing the music research for him and people like Matt Johnson and Jack Armstrong. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it was really, I mean, really, we had some really major talent there. So I was really exposed to the strongest possible people I could. 
it's funny too. I always tell my children, whenever you're going to get into a field, make sure you meet, meet the people who really know what they're doing in the business. Cause it, uh, it accelerates your progress through that and learning, learning and growing. Yeah. So, um, anyway, I went on from there to uh, work with Joel Denver in Miami. Um, after Miami, I took over a couple of radio stations in Jacksonville, which I ch- transitioned uh, the FM station from an album rock station into a top 40 station and did pretty well in the, in the market at the time. We were up against some big uh, heavy hitters like uh, the Kaplans over at the Ape, yeah. the APE. The big and Ape. Those folks. So, uh, yeah, the Big Ape with the Grease Man and all those folks. Uh, so I went from there to uh, got a uh, job offer because of all my background in research. So the one thing about radio is, you know, in my early days, everybody was, DJs were picking their own music and playing whatever they wanted to. And people like Buzz and, and, and other programmers in the, in the country at the time, Bill Ennis, and a lot of those folks were, were basically taking control of the music, saying, no, we're not just going to play anything we like, we want to play what the people like. So uh, research became really important at that point. What a and concept, because, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's not play what we like. Let's play what they like. Yeah, and uh, and and really, it, there was a resistance to that at the time, but it, it really was proving out that the, that the radio stations were gaining higher market share by being more cognizant of what people wanted to hear. Yes. So uh, the, the folks at Record World wanted to do a, a different kind of thing. The, the magazines at the time were doing quantitative research or qualitative research, where they were calling retail outlets saying, "Hey." Tell us, you know, what's selling, excellent, good, fair, poor, and then they had a rating system where they marked on, you know, what they thought it was, and then they'd come up with a chart methodology where I was more based in more qualitative research where we really called all the major retailers and asked us to give us an exact number and ranking of the uh, music. So nowadays it's a lot easier, right? These people just swipe the the, um, codes, it goes right in, and they know exactly what was sold. But back then you had to just get the information word of mouth. Right. So, Which meant anyway, it could be ma- manipulated because <laughs> we used to manipulate yeah. those store reports to get what we needed okay. to help get our, our records up on the charts. Wait a minute, Fred. You yeah, you yeah. went against the system and manipulated something? I, I find <laughs> yes, that sir. hard to believe. <laughs> yes, sir, I did. <laughs> yes. I didn't mind manipulating because we did our, I was manipulated well, you know, radio did that as well. Radio was very, uh, you know, responsible for the paper ads, as they used to call them. You know, they would tell the record labels they're playing it, and they might give it a spin in overnights or something like that. But, uh, yeah, it, it happened on both sides. So I'm not trying to pick on the record tell you. And you mentioned Joel oh, yeah. Denver, and you mentioned Joel Denver uh, earlier, and he's just a great guy. Yeah. I mean, we can all— He is a great guy. And it's great to see him thriving and doing what he's doing. So I just kind of want to give him a shout out as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. We both kind of ended up in charts. He went to uh, R&R and I was over at Record World at the time while he was working that. And then, of course, I made a transition to the big bucks over into the music, into the uh, record side of things. (laughs) So let's get into that. Record World, the way that happened, the transition there was I met a lot of people who were not just record promotion people or radio people or even retailers, but also music publishers, songwriters, and, uh, of course, artists. And uh, I ran across a guy who was, his name was Billy Preston. And, uh, you know, God rest him. He was, you know, obviously connected with the Beatles, you know, from his time. That Billy Preston. That Billy Preston. 
I mean, did did he live up? Did he live up to the name as the fifth Beatle? Do you think that was a fair assessment of his uh, kind of title there? Yeah, and the end result, I ended up meeting uh, a lot of the members. You know, George Harrison, and then of course George Martin. Wow! Um, wow! And this is the transition over to Chrysalis. Chrysalis Records is owned by the two primary principals are a guy named Chris Wright and Terry Ellis. Ah. That's the name. Chrysalis. That's the name, Chris Ellis. Yeah. Oh, that's got, that. got it. And there's a whole there's a whole story about those two really great guys. Uh, but the silent partner there was a guy named George Martin, and George, who had produced all the Beatle albums, as you know. Uh, wow. At the t- at the time, I guess in 1970, the Beatles broke up, and George, and of course, even the Beatles, if you remember the whole Alan Klein mess, um, no one really thought the music was going to endure the way it did. They didn't anyway. Um, and so they made, he made a deal with the Terry Ellis and Chris Wright to be part of the whole Christmas thing. Did not know and that. They, yeah, so basically meeting those folks, and then Sal Licata had hired me at Christmas because they really had decided at the time they had a very big album rock reputation. And, and I think, Fred, you, you probably could remember that when Christmas, a, a, a package came from Christmas to a radio station at the AOR level, they were we were the first to be opened um, yeah, because they had that kind of reputation as a boutique label with Jethro Tull and uh, Ian Hunter. A lot, I mean, a lot of things that really had established them pretty strongly there. Can but I, can I George jump, was, can I, can I jump in real quick there just to kind of dr- drop off a little bit? Uh, and you sure. can talk to the, about this later if you'd like, but Jethro Tull beating Metallica for heavy metal at the Grammys. <laughs> You want to talk about that now, or wait just a few minutes? <laughs> That's so wild. That's such... I, I, I will. I'll bring. I'll go to it. All right. Okay. Ian, Ian Anderson uh, from Jethro Tall had not a really great reputation among the promotion guys. Other, he was kind of brutal on some of those folks. So I meet him uh, the first time, and for some reason, he and I really get along. I like the guy, and uh, we go out to dinner. This was during the Falkland Islands. Uh, thing that was going on and i bring that up because someone else showed up at dinner with a lady from argentina who got into a massive argument with ian Uh about the falkland islands and and what england was going was going on there and and ian's very british you know and he's very (laughs) uh can i say it it put it this way the guy who brought her wasn't working for us much after that wow Um, man so he was royalty, and, and I, I realized then that Ian was playing for, for a real. He really had a lot of control over what happened at the company. So one day, I get a call from Ian. He said, hey, Jack, I've got this uh, call from the Grammys saying that I'm up for, uh, the, the group is up for metal, uh, heavy metal artists. <laughs> wow. And I said, he said, here's what I want to know. Should I, should I come in? I don't, you know, it would be a lot of time and energy. I have other things planned. Should I come in for this? I said, Ian, you're not heavy metal. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're up against Metallica. Like, they're huge. They, you know, they are heavy some, metal. <laughs> yeah, they, and they're really heavy metal. I said, I don't think it's going to happen. So, you know, I go on with my day. I'm sitting at the Grammys. They announce the winner. Ian, of course, is not there because I asked him. I told him it wasn't that kind of voice. Oh, time. my gosh. <laughs> they win, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> you know, this, could, <laughs> this could be the end of my career with Chrysalis. Oh, I get boy. back home that night, and he calls me up, and he's laughing. 
Really? And he's saying, you know, he he said, you know, honestly, you were right. We didn't belong in the category, and I'd have probably been embarrassed going up there. Thank you. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> I, oh, I said, speak nothing of it, Ian. No problem whatsoever. And if my memory is correct, I believe that was the first year that uh, the Grammys ever had the heavy metal uh, category, yeah. I believe. So that's yeah, why yeah, I think yeah. so many people just, you know, totally shit on it because it's like, here's a heavy metal category. You got Metallica, who's pretty much a shoe-in, a shoe-in. and all of a sudden, here's a flute-playing band that wins heavy metal <laughs> artists, you know? how That is so true. That is so true. So what, what I'm anxious to get to with you, if I hope you don't mind, is the stories of, so, like these stories here, of some of the bands you worked with, because I know my partner, L.A. Lloyd, happens to really love Pat Benatar a lot. And Blondie. Uh, and, and Blondie. Blondie yes. You know, and of course, who doesn't like Huey Lewis in the news or Billy Idol? You know? Yep. So, th- th- which one would you like to start off with first? Well, we can, we can start off with Pat because she really would have been next in line because, you know, as we were growing in the top 40 in mass appeal markets, Pat was really obviously establishing herself at AOR, but we were also growing with hits like uh, Hit Me With Your Best Shot and all those things that, you know. She, you know, she was really famous for. But I will tell you, say that when I came into the company, one of the things later on, as she was putting out different albums, she put out uh, an album and and released the first single of "Love Is a Battlefield." Yeah, wow. Now, and, and it was great, right? So, and a great song. And I'm going through this whole thing, and, and we're establishing a relationship at this time. And I think I'm, I'm pretty sure it was Dave Shawn who was working for Gavin report at the time and a very dear friend of mine he writes a nice review but he makes this comment at the end of the review saying and pat benatar who's the kamikaze of love <laughs> kamikaze of love what does that mean well here, here's the thing she walks into my office which she was known to do a lot of radio guys would sit there and she just come in all the time and say listen at this particular time she's saying <laughs> i don't get this kamikaze of love stuff and I know he's a friend of yours, so what's this about? And I said, Pat, <laughs> if you think about it, hit me with your best shot, treat me right. I mean, you better run. You pretty much, <laughs> you pretty much are the kamikaze of love. <laughs> That's funny. That's awesome. Yeah, she was great, though. I loved working with her. Not to mention uh, that little you know, shimmy she did in the video for Love is a Battlefield. I love that that end scene. She's actually doing choreography. I was like, here's this cool rock chick, man, doing choreography oh. on a video on MTV in the 80s. It was awesome. And they rocked. Oh, yeah. The band rocked. Oh, yeah, yeah. Her, her guitar player was amazing. The band was tight. I mean, they had it all. So, Jack, let me ask oh, yeah. you a question. If you were working for a label you know, today let's, let's move you into 2021 and you've got a band and you've got a band, a rock band like Hailstorm and Lizzie Hale, who's got this amazing vocals, just like Pat Benatar, but top 40 radio would never Never. touch this record. Why do you think that it's changed so much over the last 40 years? I really think there's been a lot of polarization that that basically occurred from the mid eighties on. Right. That uh, where radio stations themselves kind of polarize themselves. Yeah. You know, we were, when we were in Top 40, and you guys remember, at least the, the Fred should remember this. I do. That <laughs> we, <laughs> we really looked at it as we were going to play the best of the best. Yeah. I'd play country. That's what it was. You name it. Top 40. Right. And, 
Yeah, and that's exactly what it was. You, it kind of frustrates me a little bit because Pat's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. And my complaint there is that you have a lot of people in there that, in my opinion, are not rock and roll. Right. Very deserving, good artists, but I just don't see it. If you want to change the name to the pop music or the top 40 or the, or the Mass Appeal Hall of Fame, whatever you want to call it, that's okay. But you know, I don't, I'm not sure that you put... Whitney Houston, who's fantastic, ahead of Pat Benatar in what you call a rock and roll hall of fame. I agree. Or Notorious Big or some of that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> hey, I, I have a question for you, Jack. Um, you know, with Warner Brothers, we had Sire as a label, and they kept signing all the bands out of New York. How they didn't sign Blondie is beyond me. because me Because Blondie was always with the Ramones or the Talking Heads or Television or, you know, some of these other bands out there. But... But they were so pop, if you will. I mean, they were very much a a top forty sounding band, and she was just a phenomenal, you know, lead singer front of the band. Yeah. Um, tell us about Blondie. Yeah. So it, here's the here's the, the, the truth is she, they're very eclectic. Right? Yes. And 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 at the time, Chrysalis had a very boutiquey kind of eclectic label. You know, I mean. We had we had artists that when she thought about where she wanted to sign, I'm sure she was looking at things saying, you know what, here's a label that doesn't have much of what I do, but they're eclectic like I am. So, you know, if they're boutique and maybe if you think about it, uh, because she was signed before my time there, it, there was a, uh, there must have been a feeling in her mind that she would be queen of the hill and, and was uh, at a smaller label that didn't have as many artists that, you know, had the same appeal. Can I inject something real quick? Because you really brought up a really great point. I read an article about um, about Dave Matthews' band, and he mm -hmm. said the reason they went to RCA, the only reason, was RCA was ice cold, and he believed in his band and his sound and their future so much that he felt like they would get so much attention and so much mm -hmm. from them going into a label that was ice cold and really didn't have a whole lot going on. Yeah. So that's an yep. amazing strategy when you think about it. And it worked very well for Blondie and Chrysalis, that's for sure. Yeah, actually, Huey Lewis fell into that same kind of category where he had a unique kind of sound altogether. And I, and I know you worked at Warner Brothers, Fred, but... Warner Brothers was trying to sign him as well. At the same time, Chrysalis was, you know, uh, trying to put his pen to paper there. So if you think about it, he, he basically what he was said is, you know, when Warner Brothers has a release, you're going to get, uh, you know, James Taylor and Carly Simon. You're going to all in it, you can name this long list of artists. And Yui was kind of open to the fact that maybe he would only go out there with another long list of established artists. You know, the, and all those people. You know, the sad truth is that. To create a hit record was a thing called timing, you know. I yeah, mean, yeah. and yeah. it had yep. to have it had to be in the grooves. The best always kind of comes to the top, but that's so true. I mean, Warner Brothers in Columbia was releasing so much product right. that we yep. had more locals in the marketplace than anybody else because we had to, you know, to really yep. cover the 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 whole country thoroughly. But you're absolutely right. But um, let's get back to Blondie. Cause I, I, I want to ask a question okay. about Huey, though, since we're on the topic. You know, now look, Huey yeah. Lewis obviously had great songs. I mean, there's no great doubt songs. about it. It was great Fun, songs on the radio. Poppy, happy. But Huey Lewis is coming 
during the MTV era where it's all about visual. Now, Huey Lewis yeah. is not an uh, unattractive man by no means, <laughs> but, I mean, he was not glammed out. He wasn't glammed yeah. out. He had an everyday yeah. haircut. He just had a nice smile. Why do you think yep. Huey Lewis, you know, from a visual standpoint, did well as also? I think he, because he wasn't glammed up, I think he was kind of standing, stood in contrast to right. what was being shown. I, I agree. That Good idea. And the songs. The songs were so yep. fun yeah. and so uplifting yep. and so, um, I don't know, just mass appeal. Yeah. Loved it. When we were on the road, the other thing that Huey could do, I mean, he was a sweetheart to work with. He, In fact, probably of all the artists I had, it was the closest I became to any of them. Uh, and we were on the road. I would say, listen, you, we're going to go into the distributors here who distribute your record. Awesome. And, uh, and, and here's what you do. <laughs> uh, we'll go in and talk to the president and the owner, and you'll do a little time there. But talk to the receptionist. Yeah. Spend a lot of time. And he, and he just loved doing that anyway. He would go in there and talk to the people. who As you go talk to the promotion guy, the local promotion guy is the guy representing you at the radio stations. And from my standpoint, it was local radio. I was the vice president. That's fine. But it was local radio that broke these things. Right. It was right. local local promotion people that really were the heart and soul of breaking a new artist. Right. Definitely. And he was, he was he, you, you will not be able to talk to one of my people, one of my regionals, or even any of the distributors that won't tell you how much they loved Yui. And so, would have done anything for him. So Fred wants to get back they to want, Rapture, I can tell. I do. But at the same time, like 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 I know Jeff Hackett. You know Jeff Hackett. Yeah, I do. We've been trying to get yeah. him on the show and he's a wonderful guy. I love Jeff. He is. And you he did is. have a really great crew uh representing you out in the in the field. But yeah, we've been oh, jumping yeah. around because we have stories about all these bands. But um but I do want to get back to Blondie because Rapture was such a prolific yeah. turning point for the band, in my opinion. I just think it it took them to another level of success. And and it's a long yeah. song. It's not your typical no. three-and-a-half-minute radio song. And then I know it's not the first rap song by no means, but Fab Five Freddy told me everybody's fly. DJ spinning. <laughs> I said, my, my. Flash is fast. Flash is cool. I mean, dude, that's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank it, you, it, thank you. It, it, <laughs> very, 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 very good. Yeah, they, uh, yeah. She, that record, it wasn't the first rap record, but it really was the first rap record that introduced a lot of mass appeal radio. Right, right, exactly. It was a, it was a long. You know, it's funny, the, the only thing I can say about it is when we finally, I got it to number one, and I thought. This is great. We're at number one. And this is kind of classic, the relationship that I have with Debbie. Their call back with, from the manager and from Debbie was, okay, but it only stayed there one week. Because <laughs> like, you like, got the Rolling Stones at, and Foreigner and all these crazy yeah. other bands, right? Yeah, exactly. All those things are going on. And I'm like, let's look at it this way. You peaked at number one. There, there's nowhere else to go from there. There is nowhere else to go. <laughs> and it's so hard to get there. I mean, yeah. it's because there's notorious it's so albums that have been held back by Thriller or Eagles or whatever. Yeah, think about all the number two singles out there that never yes. got to be a number one. You I know mean, what? That's we should, do, look at. We should oh, yeah, do a yeah. show of that, yeah. Lloyd. We should do a number two show. For sure. I'm about to do I'll, a number I'll, two I'll right now. I've a lot of stories about those <laughs> just from having done Record World because when I, I worked for a guy named Spence Berlin, uh, uh, and some of you guys might remember him, but 
Spence would come into my office when I was doing the charts and he'd say, what's number one? And at that particular week he was asking, it was maybe the 10th week in a row that you light up my life was number one. Yeah. And he was like, I hate that song. I'm sick of that song. <laughs> Which, he said, if I had my way, there'd be a new number one song every week, you know, regardless of what it was. Not only was it a number one that year, I think it was the number one song of the decade, I believe. Was, that song it, was so freaking huge. And it was on Warner Brothers, and I had joined right after they had released it. And Fred, if you put that song on the <laughs> no, show, I'm going to kick your <laughs> no, ass. We're no, not playing her. No. We're not playing that song. No, we're playing Rapture. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But, uh, but they were happy with the fact that we went to number one there. Unfortunately for them, I think that was pretty much the end of the kind of music that uh, kind of grabbed people from the you know Blondie era and the Top Forty world. Right. You know, she really went more into the uh, into the album rock type of stuff. Let's uh, let's I mean, jump into it. let's jump into Billy Idol. What do you say? Because I mean, you know, here's a guy who's definitely lived out the formula. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Because you know, if you see Billy today, he yeah. looks exactly the same as he did with a few more wrinkles uh, back in 1982. You know. So oh true. yeah, it's funny. If you you guys have to put yourself back in 1982, the first time Billy and I met, I was in New York City, and he came into the office like, "Oh, you're the guy that's going to make me famous." He <laughs> 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 was rough and tumble kind of guy, but I I really liked his style. And he, um, in fact, the, the promotion guy, his manager, came in after Billy left and said, "What well, wasn't his manager at the time? He was one of the people he was working with." Said, "Hey, he's not the kind of guy you want to take home to Thanksgiving dinner." But his music's really good. Yeah, right. He's you know, very street, to- you know? He was very yeah. street. He was very real. He had a nice, you know, just, you know, assertive, aggressive. I've always wanted to ask this question about, uh, you know, his obviously uh, sounding a little bit like Elvis. I mean, was he a huge Elvis fan? Oh, or can you talk about that? I don't think he was a huge Elvis fan per se, but he had definitely the same chops that Elvis had. Right. I mean, no question. When I first heard his voice, it's funny that you would say that. The first thing I said is, this guy's rock and roll voice is dead on. Yeah. Yeah. And his sneer. Yeah. The look he had was a little bit, especially in the South, we had a hard time kind of selling the whole thing. Those Southerners, you know? And in fact, there's a funny story about that. When we uh, we first released uh, uh, "Dancing with Myself," was one of the first singles yep. we put out for him. And people were like, "I love this song," but it ended up peaking, I think, at number sixty something, because we just couldn't crack. We couldn't crack the South. We couldn't crack some other areas. It just wasn't. We lost you. Well, it was a great interview. <laughs> you know, I had a good time. Thank goodness for uh, editing. I had no idea George Martin actually was a silent partner at Chrysalis Records. I didn't either. You know. He'll call back. Yeah, I'll, I'm just going to drop him right now. I think he got another call. I heard a beeping or something, or something was going yeah. on with his... Uh, we'll let him so let's get into uh, Billy Idol more, and let's get back into Huey Lewis more, because if we can uh, we zone in on a song, yeah. then I can play it. Obviously. Okay, yeah. And I do want to talk hey, about guys. Spandau Ballet too. Just one, one quick little bit. We don't have to play <laughs> no, Spandau Ballet, no, but I'm I want to talk that. about it. A no, bit I'm later. not playing that song. Sorry, Jack. We're just kind of lining up the rest of the show here. Stuff that we want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so much fun! It's so great to have you. So good. Get back into well, Billy you, Idol. Definitely talking more about, about Billy Idol there. So Billy Idol. Uh, so it took a lot of things in my mind. I said we're going to have to do a lot of stuff. We did White Wedding, so I put white vinyl on for him. Nice. Uh, and that 
that grabbed some you know attention, but we were still having a hard time building momentum for him. And then we put out this song called Hot in the City. Yeah. Now, Hot in the City, if you remember that song, it was probably one of my favorite for Billy. But at the very end, he goes, New York, mm-hmm. and he screams that out. And I said, listen, why don't we go back in the studio? And he was so agreeable. Excellent. Excellent. And we do every city. Chicago, Cleveland. (laughs) Smart. And we did tapes and sent them out to all the radio stations. And boom, we get a lot of good traction. Excellent. Not to mention, they they used the song in the the movie Big. And uh, it kind of took it over the top. That right there is what makes a great promotion, man. Yep, right there. There's no doubt about it. I mean, doing that sort of thing just gives everybody a chance to be a part of it, you know? And that's so brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it it works really well, I think, again, as we talked about, the localized. So our local guys were, you know, the Jeff Hackett's and the Chuck Owners and all those guys were, like, thrilled to walk into radio stations saying, hey, this is your personal song. Yeah. Uh, before we jump away from Billy, I just wanted to ask about his guitar player, Steve Stevens. I mean, he's kind of like you know the Keith Richards. He's you don't you don't hear him talk that much, but man, what a badass guitar player! He's the heart and soul. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. the heart and soul now, of that I, band. I agree. I agree. Great guy to work with. Uh, Billy Billy knows it's his heart and soul, and um, and of course the the key for Billy was his his relationship with Keith Forsey, the producer. Right. Well, what is a funny story that you could tell us about Billy Idol? Just something that you makes you laugh out loud. Hmm. I have some that I can't tell you. <laughs> Come on. Well, this is a podcast, so we can kind of do any of that. We just can't do it in the radio show. Right. <laughs> uh, let me get some real thought to it. Uh, I think uh, there, was a, there was a time Billy was in my office and we were eating pizza, and he was angry about uh, some... Uh, I guess People Magazine had panned the, an album, and and I thought my attitude was, "Hey, People Magazine wrote you up, you know." Yeah, yeah. That's that's good publicity, but he he wasn't seeing it that way at the time. So he had a little to do with the person who was in communications, and uh, he. It's funny he didn't really kick her door down, <laughs> but he kind of kicked it. He kicked it open, and <laughs> you know, the the whole thing in my office. After he's done eating pizza, he leaves. He's finally calmed down. Well, this pr- communications person wasn't calmed down. Oh. And uh, I had to calm them, her down saying, listen, it's rock and roll, right? I mean, it's uh, kind of what we have to accept. <laughs> it's aggressive. We're not, really it is. Working, we're, not, we're not really working in IBM here. At the right. It's not working little... Debbie Boone over here. Yeah, it can be a little aggressive, <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right, uh, so can we segue back to Huey Lewis? Do you have anything sure. about, like, sure. uh, maybe the sports album that you could talk, talk to us about? Yeah, well, literally maybe before the sports album, because the first Do You Believe in Love was really the oh, first great, hit single. great. That was the first hit for, yeah. for Huey? Yep, that was that was his first big hit, and, and it was designed to be a hit. Because we, you know, Huey had turned in the album and um, picture this album, which was great. And I remember thinking, I don't really hear a, a first hit single. I hear a lot of hits. I hear some opportunity for it. But we needed something that was really going to open the door for him. So the A&R people got to work on it, and we got the writers and the people, and they worked with Yui to do Do You Believe in Love. And uh, I'm not going to mention the producer's name, but I recommended this producer at the time because he had done a lot of work with live acts. And, and if you've seen Yui live, it's even better than anything he's ever done on TV. Yeah. 
in his, in his, in his early days, it just blew me away. So what I was trying to do is say, let's capture the live like they do with Bruce Springsteen, for instance. You know, capture the live sound, the live feeling, that energy, and put it on disc. And so we used the producer who was big name, great guy, and Yui came into my office, and he, and he plays me the tape, and I'm like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> and Yui was like, well, thank God, because he was worried that we were all just going to go along with it because the guy had a big name. So uh, we changed it all up, and Yui did a lot of the production himself on it, worked with the group. Do You Believe in Love came out. It was a hit in about, I don't know, two or three weeks. It was almost, almost an immediate breaker. So um, when was it that Back to the Future talks got you know brought up? Because, I mean, back in time, I mean, you know, that was another staple for him. I mean, was he about doing the soundtrack? Did they ask him to do it? Did he have the song already written? Or what's the story about Back to the Future? Yeah, I think that, well, as far as the movie portion of it goes, he had a relationship somehow with George Lucas. Okay. Who had uh, nice. opened the doors for That helps. Yeah, yeah that certainly, <laughs> certainly will help right there. Yeah. Well, after we broke him, he was able to be a neighbor of his. So Yeah, <laughs> wow. I'm sure well, he could. Nice. Uh, great guy. Lives in Montana now, though, so he's just kind of enjoying fly fishing. Well, and I understand, uh, I think it was 60 Minutes or a morning show on Sunday uh, um, that talked about Huey Lewis battling his hearing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Which is really kind of sad because I guess it comes and goes where there's times he can actually hear and function and then he can't and the band doesn't know what to do. Yeah, it's a little more than tenuitis, I guess, than, than normally every rock and roll guy ends up with something like that. Uh, but I think his is a little more severe, and it's 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 preventing him from maintaining pitch, which is if you can't do that, it's you can't go on the road. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, good guy, good band, good music. I can't wait to play some on the radio show. Uh, good folks, uh, uh, and I'm glad, uh, I'm glad Fred, you guys together. <laughs> what was that? No, this. Oh, jeez. Oh, your your spando ballet. Uh, all right. All right. Jack, he wants to talk about Spando Ballet. It's a huge hit. We got to um, talk you, about this song. Will you go ahead and entertain him? Because I can't control him at all. I, 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 will, I will give you the true story. All He's right. my Billy yeah. Idol of our partnership here, just so you know. I love it. You guys are great. This is uh, So Spando Ballet was, there was some friction going on in between the two owners, too. It would be Terry and Chris, because... We were doing really well with our American acts, but you know Pat Benatar wasn't doing well in Europe, and Yui wasn't transitioning over in Europe. But we were having great success at the time. You know, the one thing I was getting pressure on from Chris Wright, who was running all the English stuff, was why aren't you breaking any you know the specials and Spandau Ballet? Yeah. Um, so I I basically said, why aren't you breaking Yui Lewis? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but no, in the end result was I listened to the records. Uh, I loved a lot of the records we had from the specials, and I loved a lot of things from Spandau Ballet, but True was a standout. Yeah. And, and of all the things they had, again, um, we were we, the way we were viewed as being a, more of an eclectic label anyway, um, to get into the mass appeal market, I didn't want to really want to run down a road by saying, okay, here's something 
very esoteric. Let's take, take something that's as solid as true was. Yeah. And that's how we broke that. It's a great we, we song. We basically saw that as a standout and went there with that. Well, if you think my version sucked, watch Steve Bashimi in The Wedding Singer do it because uh, he nails it even worse than I do. No. Can't be. All right. So, Jack, I love to ask this question, and you're going to have different answers because my question to you is do you remember? Well, of course you remember. What was your first gold record? And I suppose you got one in radio, and then I suppose you got yep. your first one at the label, Chrysalis Records. Right. Um, yeah. But tell us. No, I guess the first gold uh, in the uh, – I'm trying to think. In, in the one that had the most meaning to me, I would put it that way. I can't remember the exact first one because 32 we were getting different kinds of ones. Uh, in fact, we, I think we got one for Popsicle Toes from your Warner Brothers label. Yes, uh, Michael Franks. Nice. Yeah. Uh, but, but because that was a huge hit for us here. Um, but uh, I, I'd say the one that had a lot of meaning to me was getting the Andy Gibb gold record in Florida when I was in Miami. Because the Gibbs were very, I mean, we would go to Criteria Studios, we'd see these guys. Um, and it was, it was a lot of meaning to Barry, I think, to see his brother succeed. Nice. Awesome. Um, they, they wanted to do it without saying it's just BGs and it was Andy Gibb at the time. And they came up the office. It's funny, too, and the reason this is fresh in my mind is because I saw the uh, HBO special. And if you, if you see the BGs, if you haven't seen it, please watch that. It's amazing. It's, it, it is amazing. It's yeah. very heartfelt. And I mean, it's the kind of thing at the end you realize, man, I feel bad for this guy being so alone at this point. Right. But he's, he's enduring and he's doing his thing. But I'd probably say that had the most meaning for me from the radio standpoint. And the first one probably uh, from Christmas would have been Pat Benatar. Yeah. Hey, um, you know what? I was it, in college radio when I played Blondie and Pat Benatar and Billy Idol and Huey Lewis and didn't ever get my plaque, man. You think uh, retro you <laughs> might could uh, hook me up? Because I'd love to hang them beside some of this other stuff I've had more recently, you know. Oh, boy, uh, if I could, if I would. And I wish Christmas was more than just a catalog. <laughs> I know. I know, right? <laughs> well, I always love... It, it was such a good label. I really loved working with those folks um, because um, everything, every single person, uh, I think the whole staff was a total of 60 people, and they were every single person was so involved with every, all the elements. That's so great. Of, of every artist. So what was, was your... family experience. What, what was your last title at Chrysalis? Uh... Vice President of Promotion Marketing. Vice President of Promotion and Marketing. And bring us forward to 2021. Are you retired? Are you still involved with research? What are you doing today? So I am I am retired. Uh, I, it's funny. I, I left music out in the 90s um, and went back. As I think I mentioned early on in this podcast, I love two things, which was music first and then science. Right. So I went back to school and studied science when I worked for Bear Corporation for... 27 years. Wow. Wow. Interesting. And retired from there, so it's been great. But they always want to hear music stories. And the Germans who owned the company would come over and say, here, we saved this guy from this music career. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I got a good friend that uh, worked for MCA Records, and after he retired, he was just one of the drivers for Enterprise. And, of course, he'd get in there and start telling Skinner stories and Elton John stories. And Olivia Newton-John, who's, like, getting tipped like crazy, is like, dude, just keep them stories coming, man, forever. That's That's why I love this show, Promotion Man. And podcast promotion man radio show because we get someone like you that shares stories like who would have ever thought that you know the story about Jethro Tull and Metallica yeah or yeah. you know yeah. George Martin being the silent partner at Chrysalis 
Um, yeah. Let's let's yeah. end the show with Stevie Wonder story. You have a really great Stevie Wonder story. Yeah, there's uh, Stevie. So and when I was working at the Record World magazine doing the charts, uh, we were in the Motown building, which is on basically Sunset and Vine, or was at the time. I don't know where they are now. But uh, at that time, all the artists, Stevie, Smokey, Marvin Gaye, were always coming into the office. They were always curious about how their records were doing because they knew we had the information. Okay, you're, you need more work in Minneapolis or you, you know whatever it was, that, nice. uh, an, an area. So I was pretty free with a lot of that information. And Stevie um, decided basically that he was going to focus on getting Martin Luther King a holiday. Wow. And uh, he wanted to use us, our vehicle and every vehicle as much as he could in the way of publicity to help that happen. And, and I committed to that. Uh, and I really, I would say this, most people don't realize that Stevie Wonder had as much, if not more, to do with Martin Luther King Day becoming a reality than anybody else. Wow. God, that just gave me the chills. Didn't know that. Yep. And uh, if you, the song Happy Birthday, which he wrote, you know, not you know, not the happy birthday, but the one that he sings. He sings a lot of all his concerts, and he's always doing it. He did it as a fundraiser from the beginning to raise funds to help Martin Luther King Day become a reality. So, wow. yeah, he was very good. There's another funny story where he drove me around in a car that he shouldn't have been driving. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait he's blind. Wait, wait a minute now. We didn't have Teslas back then. Self driving cars. <laughs> wait a minute here. <laughs> Hold the phone. Now, I'm guessing. There was a president of the company, a guy named Barney Ailes and, uh, and a guy named Mike Leska, who were, at the end of the day, we always ended up in the bar downstairs, you know, talking about the day and how things went. And uh, so one day, they, you know, Barney said, hey, I got a new uh, Rolls Royce. You want to take a ride in it? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great. So I'll go over in the car over there and wait. And here's the keys. Just put it in the issue and I'll be right over. So I go, you know, in the garage area and it looked clear it was really weird to me the one whole floor seemed really clear but i go in there i put the key in the car stevie wonder gets in the driver's side <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like okay you know this is funny stevie you know, turns the key starts going around and all of a sudden I'm, I'm seeing him counting but i'm like what is going on here and he's missing the pillar on the one end and he goes around the other end he misses the other pillar and i'm thinking he and i apparently this is a routine they had done with some other folks. Ah, right? You were punked. So, so, yeah, so the guy named Skip Miller, they're all standing there laughing their butts off. And Skip Miller, who was one of the executives at Motown at the time, walks over the car. And he finally opens my, my driver's side door. And Stevie said, how's he look now? <laughs> Skip, says, Skip says, he's whiter now than he was when he went in. I'm sure you were, man. That's oh, awesome. Oh, that's great. Jack. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Guys. been one of my favorites we've done, man. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'll tell you what, I've listened to all of uh, the ones you sent there. And Harold, what a great guy. Harold yeah. Childs, sure. wonderful. Not a, not a, Harold Childs, great guy. And, and the, the, you got to get back with Paul Fishkin, too, and finish his stories. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we, we do. Uh, Paul was great, too. Yeah. Yeah, we've been having a really good time. We're trying to get to uh, Andrea Gannis. Um, She's got she's got some phenomenal hologram, yeah, and Atlantic records, and so she's got Atlantic too. Yeah, yeah. she's got some great stories. So we're trying to get her, but yeah, thank you for being a guest on our show. Oh, thank you guys very much. Okay. Hey.
Thanks. Have a good one. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Promotion Man, the true backstories of the most iconic bands in the world told by Fred Myers and interviewed by me, L.A. Lloyd. Get involved and interact on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find the links at promotion-man.com. That's promotion-man.com. Download the weekly Promotion Man podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. We appreciate you subscribing and spreading the word, and thanks for listening.